Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is Friday, January 11th of 2013. This is our first show of the new year. And tonight, our guest is Johnny Lorenz from the uh, San Francisco Drug Users Union. It's a group that you can find it on Meetup, and it meets up live, and we're going to ask him all the details of what goes on uh, with the San Francisco Drug Users Union. Uh, Before we bring him on, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called how to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Johnny Lorenz, is with us right now. John, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Uh, tell me a little bit about your history. Have you always been a harm reductionist, or did you come through more traditional channels? Well, I came through more traditional channels originally. Um, when I started working uh, for a, a place called Milestones, I, I was only I was newly clean myself. I'd only been clean about 18 months um, at the time, and that, that's when I was involved in 12-step groups and doing the whole clean and sober thing. Um, and so the first place I started working was definitely, you know, harm reduction was just becoming part of the vocabulary of people in drug treatment. Um, at that time, and at that time, it only meant needle exchange at the very most. So the place I started working for was for parolees coming out of the California state prison system. So when you talk about punitive, I mean, we had parole agents in there regularly with dogs and guns, you know, chasing people around the facility. So it was uh, very, very, very old school um, based in some ways, but still we were we were doing more for parolees than, than most of the rest of the system was. And when did you first uh, get interested in harm reduction and first start making a transition? Well, I can say that I, when I first started hearing about it, I was, like a lot of people, I was uh, a little um, um, apprehensive at first because uh, I had been uh, so indoctrinated into the whole abstinence-only um, you know, theme uh, for my own recovery at the time. Um, so it started uh, around the time I started working for the Treatment Access Program, in San Francisco, which was uh, in part created by something called Treatment on Demand. And um, that was where we started putting people into programs. And then when they were getting thrown out the next day, we started complaining, you know, saying you can't just keep going. That's where harm reduction began to be practiced in the in the work that I was doing. And so uh, tell me a little bit more about this. How does how, What does this mean? Uh, you, the traditional programs would throw anyone out for relapsing. Is that correct? Yeah, and they, I mean, um, that still happens around most of the country today, but in San Francisco, the Department of Public Health um, has a behavioral health uh, component that uh, made its policy a harm reduction policy uh, and, and part of their mission statement. And so any, any drug program in the city that was going to get funding from uh, the city had to adhere to some sort of harm reduction policy. And that usually meant that people didn't get thrown out for their first relapse from residential treatment. I mean, they would get some more chances. They would get, you know, people would try to work with them a little bit more, you know. So that's how it came about in, in that aspect. 
Yeah, it's a little like uh, if you had diabetes and they said, well, if your blood sugar goes too high, we'll take away your insulin, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean if, if you want to compare it to other forms of medical treatment, you know, um, just because someone's still smoking, you don't take away their oxygen tank. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit more about your journey towards harm reduction. What else happened on your way? Um, well, I mean, over time, I can say that, that for me, I became frustrated with the resources that I had to offer that, that were all leading into the abstinence-based system. You know, that the, the, the patients that I was working with, now I'm doing referrals from the emergency room at San Francisco General, psych emergency uh, uh, ER at General, and from the, something called the Wound Clinic, which was a, a clinic entirely devoted to treating IV uh, drug-related abscesses. So, I mean, the people that I'm dealing with um, weren't, gonna, weren't functioning well in any kind of traditional treatment, and I was very frustrated by that. And when I started just trying to work with patients where they are on my own, not really even, I mean, I'd heard a little bit about harm reduction concepts, but, it, you know, I was doing this kind of already on my own naturally because I was fed up with the abstinence-based system. Well, I know you're um, saying for, oh, go ahead. Please go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and then I was fortunate enough to, um, when I was working for the Division of Substance Abuse and Addiction Medicine at uh, UCSF uh, Psych Department, um, that they assigned uh, Jimmy Little, uh, author of uh, one of the authors of, uh, you know, the Harm Reduction uh, Therapy Guides, um, along with Pat Denning. Um, I was lucky enough to have her as my group supervisor, and that was like getting like, you know, a course, you know in harm reduction, an intensive three-year course in harm reduction from her. I really learned quite a bit from, from that, that experience. Yeah, Jeannie's written some really great articles about doing harm reduction therapy groups. She's got an article in Andrew Tatarsky's book, and then she's got a lot of info in the books that she wrote with Pat Denning, who we have interviewed here two times. So those are uh, she's a wonderful resource. Yeah, I feel I really, really feel fortunate to, to all that I've learned from her uh, during that time. It really, really did change my whole outlook on uh, treating people or working with people who are drug users. You know, and then you know, and so from that experience, you know, things really began to change for me. I stopped looking at myself as a clean and sober person. Um, I stopped. Uh, you know, I consider myself to be a drug user today who's not using you know, any illegal substances and I identify with other drug users. And so my group is actually a peer-facilitated group because I'm a peer, um, although I'm a ringer in a way in that I have lots of training experience in facilitating harm reduction groups. But my goal with my group is always to encourage other people to form their own support groups, to, to take training to become peer facilitators, and facilitating harm reduction support groups are just support groups for drug users. We don't even have to call them harm reduction support groups. Now, you said you are abstinent from all illegal drugs. Uh, do you indulge in any legal substances like alcohol or tobacco or caffeine? Uh, I do have a medical marijuana uh, recommendation, um, and so I stick to that, you know, as far as any kind of thing that uh, is a little different than the norm. Um, and I use it as a substitution strategy, definitely, um, that's also something that I talk about in groups a lot is cannabis substitution strategies um, because any place where a person can have access to legal medical marijuana 
as an alternative to alcohol, cocaine, heroin, or whatever, um, that's always going to be the safer choice that I would, like, suggest to them and and to myself. Are you familiar with any of the research by Amanda Ryman? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I'm a a huge fan of Amanda Ryman's work. Um, The study that she did at the Berkeley Patient Group uh, on the socialization of people who are able to medicate with marijuana uh, together is is really groundbreaking work, Uh, really was groundbreaking work, and and, uh, I look to it uh, as uh, inspiration quite a bit. And just for our listeners out there, we have an interview in our archive with Amanda Ryman about cannabis substitution. It's a great show if you want to go back and look it up. Now, tell me a little bit more about the Users' Union. What uh, What's its focus, or what are its focuses, I should say? Yeah, the, I mean, the, the San Francisco Drug Users' Union has several focuses, but we're basically a group of men and women, current and former drug users, who are concerned about uh, the discrimination and stigmatization of drug users via the drug war. Um, that's our primary concern, and, that, and you know, that's, that brings up a broad base of issues that we that we work on. Um, you know, we're trying to help promote public awareness about trying to get a uh, safe injection room in San Francisco. Um, mm-hmm. We recently testified before the uh, Human Rights Commission, uh, the San Francisco Human Rights Commission, who is uh, about to um, uh, put out a report um, on uh, discrimination of drug users and seeing drug users perhaps as almost a protected class in certain ways. Uh, so that we don't get discriminated in housing and jobs and, and other things. Um, what else are we working on? So, yeah, we're you know we have support groups uh, that we do there. Uh, we're involved in distributing Narcan. Uh, we're not a needle exchange, uh, uh, but uh, we support needle exchanges and go out and do outreach at needle exchanges. Um, so that's just like maybe the tip of the iceberg there. Um, and we're allied with other drug user groups and unions in the United States and Canada and throughout the world uh, who have, you know, a history of drug users helping other drug users. Do you talk any about substance use management strategies such as safer or reduced use? Oh, most definitely, yeah. In the support group that I've been facilitating for a while, um, you know, it's it's, it's intended uh, as a group for uh, members of the of the Drug Users Union, um, but it's open to anyone. Um, but uh, for the people in the in the union who are also drug act, drug user activists, that's an important place to be able to um, talk about stuff other than business, you know, other than the campaigns we're working on and, and, and the nuts and bolts of that. So um, for people that are finding that their, their cravings are going up uh, more than they want to, um, if they're having problematic use with any substance, we, we talk about it. And I and I, ha- I have to say, I think in the setting that we're in, I feel like the level of honesty that people are able to come to when they're um, talking with fellow drug users about what they're really using is amazing. And that we're able to get down to the nitty-gritty of, of what's problematic use for people. And um, people are, when people know they have a place they can talk about this openly, um, it's another way that they're able to reduce their use because they, if they know they can come and talk about it, um, then it reduces some of the pain around uh, an isolation perhaps around using and uh, people come and, you know, because they know they have a place they can talk about their cravings, they know they can't, they can't talk to their doctor, they can't talk to 
like even the people in their building, if they live in a case-managed SRO because they fear of losing their housing, if they can come to our group and talk about it. Um, it's an outlet that helps them reduce, especially binge use. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think it's <clears throat> it's a problem, you know, when people have prescribed abstinence or even prescribed moderate limits, you know, and if you're not within those prescribed moderate limits or not within the abstinence, um, it's like, you know, you can't, you can't really be accepted. Um, I noticed this when I was with moderation management, and that's kind of why we split off to do the harm reduction for alcohol, where our approach is to say to people, what what sort of drinking limits do you think are good for you? What do you think is problematic in your drinking, and what do you want to change? We're not going to tell you that this set amount is the amount you ought to drink. What what do you think? Make up your your mind where you want to be at. And I think that's allowed a lot of people to be really honest that, you know, and talk about and even say, you know, I think for me maybe quitting is the best thing. Or for me, maybe I'm going to get drunk once a week, but, you know, I can't do it every day of the week or I get in trouble. Oh, most definitely. Um, I mean, in my, you know, like some, it's almost like 18 years of counseling and working with uh, drug users. I mean, I learned early on that, that you know, it, this could be a really frustrating job if you expected people were going to do what you wanted them to do. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I've, you know, when I, stopped, when I stopped worrying about trying to tell people what to do or trying to convince them or somehow manipulate them with, you know, some magic psychotherapy, you know, babble, into doing what I wanted to do, I was still going to end up being uh, having unmet expectations and then having transference issues with the client, you know, or the patient or whatever, the drug user, whatever you want to, however you want to refer to them. So that, that's how that worked out for me. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, drug user rights and uh, <clears throat> drug user stigma and some of these issues. Um, do you think that uh, people have a basic uh a basic right to use any substances that they want to? I do. I personally do believe that um, that a human being has the right to their own body and that they have, you know, it's a, it's a sovereign reign that you have over your own body and what you put into it. And how you choose to meet reality is also up to the individual human being and that no one else can dictate how we approach reality, whether it's through a you know, whether we add chemicals to, the re- to that reality or not. So it's just, I mean, in my opinion, you know, locking people up in prison because they choose to use a certain substance is just as bad as locking people up because they choose to engage in certain sexual practices with consenting adults or because of their skin color or any of these other things that we have done, you know, in past history that we've overcome with some of these other things uh, now that, uh, you know, gay rights is more acceptable, I think this, that drug user rights should be more acceptable, too. Well, you, you've hit on a great point because, I, you know, I was listening to some of the other interviews you've done, and, and, I, and I heard the one with, uh, I think, um, um, the guy from ACT UP that was just on uh, mm-hmm, in December. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember his name, of course. Donald right now. Grove. David, yeah, Donald, Donald Grove. Grove. And I've been drawing a parallel between the drug user uh, empowerment movement here in the United States and ACT UP in that, um, you know, we we have a history of, it's like you almost have to come out of the closet as a drug user, you know, in certain ways. Like doing that, saying that openly in public 
is like as scary a thing for some people as it would be to state their sexual preference, or at least it was, you know, or at least, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that we're, as a movement, that that's part of, a, you know, we're going to change the identity of drug users, you know, change the, the, the stereotyping of drug users, just like ACT UP helped to change the stereotyping, of course, of, of anybody with HIV, but especially also, you know, people who are gay. Mm-hmm. Well, we know in history, um, there are drug users who have been great men, even though they have been addicted drug users. I know one of the examples that comes up a lot is the guy, the head surgeon from Johns, Johns Hopkins, who was one of the founders of the university hospital there, who was a lifelong morphine addict, and still there, he was their chief surgeon and the best surgeon in the hospital. Well, there, yeah, there's just lots of examples of that. I, I was interviewed on, on uh, local TV on uh, Monday night because the drug czar was here in San Francisco, and there's, there's links to it I can put somewhere. But um, um, they were asking us, you know, about the Obama coming. I mean, I, I mean, or sorry, about the drug czar's visit. Um, I just forgot what I was going to say. But... Um, uh, well, we were talking about some historical people that that have been drug users that have uh, had oh, great accomplishments. Well, like our yeah. president, you know, like our yes. current president has admitted to using, uh, you know, marijuana and cocaine, and and uh, and yet he's he's one of the people that's helping to keep five hundred thousand nonviolent offenders in jail. You know, I mean that that's you know when I talk about my support group that I do that. That that's a part of what we're talking about. We're talking about being activists and what it feels like to fully realize the depth of of what the stigmatization of drug users has done to us as a people, and that that's a part of like the emotional baggage that we carry around and that we have to work on, and that in our support groups, and that's part of what we support each other around is just the realization of how bad things really are for drug users in the United States and around the world. Well, I realize for myself, it so happens my drug of choice is alcohol, and um, I've tried a couple of other drugs, but I don't like them, so I don't use them. But so my drug of choice is is the legal one, but I also know that it's one of the most dangerous and one that that is capable of causing the most impairment, and it can be a really destructive drug, but no one's going to put me in prison for buying alcohol in the U.S. or for drinking it in the U.S., well, you know, and that the reasons for that are, are you know, of course, historical. You know, uh, white men brought liquor to the to the to these shores, and it was you know white established, you know, men that uh, made it an industry and you know did things like fought the whiskey rebellion back when someone tried to take it away from them a long time ago. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's, it's a historical. Well. You know, we start looking back at uh, some of the things that were going on, and, you know, co- cocaine was, there was a big campaign that was associated cocaine with black users uh, around the turn of the century, and that was one of the reasons why it was, uh, <clears throat> there was a big push to outlaw it, because uh, one of one of our original drug czars was saying this would make black men rape white women. Right. Well, no, nothing's really changed today if you look at the at the crack cocaine sentencing laws. I mean, they made a recent little change to it from it's instead of 100 to 1 versus powder cocaine, it's like 18 to 1. 
but that you know that's been primarily aimed at the black community the entire time, you know. And I'm going to go back to this to say this is an issue that we would talk about in the support group at the Drug Users Union. We would talk. We you know we we inter interlace uh, support around substance use with political action and how and how those two work together, you know. Because when we empower people, I found in the group, you know, it's like when you can take a drug user who's using five grams of heroin a day, and when they start to look at themselves differently as being, you know, not listening to the stereotypes that they've been told about being a junkie or whatever, when they can start to think about themselves in a different way, I don't know why, but people end up starting to use less because that that trauma and stigmatization and all the psychological burdens that it puts on people if they can release that by having the realization that they're not as bad as they've been told they are, by magic, they might start to use less. I'm not saying it happens all the time, but that's been my observation. I think it makes sense because, you know, if you start feeling better about yourself, you have fewer reasons, uh, fewer mo- less motivation to use. Right. It's like the- well, I mean, if, if, we are, if we agree that, that trauma is one of the biggest um, drivers of binge use and and hard drug use in general, like a history of, of psycho tra- psych- psychiatric trauma, you know, then then it definitely makes sense that in in any way that we can reduce that that history of trauma, reduce uh, the negative effects of it um, by turning people's attitude around. I mean, it's, it, it it can really help. You know, I mean, I also kind of uh, talk about conscious drug use responsible drug use, uh, kind of a mindful drug use, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a recreational drug use. Right, 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 you know. Um, well, some people I think you even have, you know, have to, who are dependent on a drug, it's still recreational in a certain light, depending on how you look at it. But, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I also want to mention that, you know, Mike, my goal is to create more alternatives to 12-step groups um, all around the country. I think we just need a lot more of them, and I think a peer-facilitated kind of kind of group, you know, drug use, run by drug users, which is part of the original idea that the 12-step groups help uh, promote. But I think that uh, if we can get a real alternative out there and it becomes popular, I know some of the other things that have been out there, LifeLink, Smart Recovery, None of them have really seemed to have, like, taken off um, and been able to serve more than a handful of people, you know. I just wish mm-hmm. there really was in that was maybe, like, one quarter the size of the 12-step groups that was there for people who want to, you know, continue using or want to manage their use and still have a place to go and talk about it and break the isolation because we know that the isolation of drug use in this country or anywhere else, is a big driver of of binge use and dangerous use. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Any way that we can, you know, break down that isolation among drug users is going to serve them well. And so I'd like to hopefully see drug user groups expand around the country uh, into into places they've no one ever thought of having them before, and and that those groups and unions would also have support groups for their members, kind of like what I'm doing. Yeah, I think Smart Recovery is actually uh, growing quite well, so I am hoping that for people 
who who are opting for abstinence that uh, this will be available everywhere for them. But I also agree with you very much that there there is a really essential need for harm reduction groups. Well, of course, I run one, so I would agree with that. <laughs> Right. But uh yeah, for, for both drug users and for uh people that drink alcohol, you know, I don't I found myself in my personal experience, uh, that these two groups actually prefer to separate from each other. Um people that are just drink alcohol and don't use illicit drugs don't feel comfortable so much in a mixed group. This has been my experience because I've tried to mix mix them up together and they said, Let's separate. Well, that's interesting. That's the way it is. You know, in my experiences of the 12-step groups is that um, a lot of people start off getting clean in Narcotics Anonymous and they go to Alcoholics Anonymous later because they don't want to hang out with their old dope dealer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know? I mean, and that's classist in and, and, and some ways, but uh, I've definitely seen that. Uh, that uh, You know, that's why AA has always, part, in part, always kept itself so separate. Um, because you know they w- they weren't really sure they wanted to associate with those those dope fiends. <laughs> mhm. Well, when we were uh, doing our online group, uh, our email group with uh, with uh, harm reduction for alcohol, initially I said, you know, let's have everybody in the same group, and uh, let's have the drug users here too, with uh, together with the drinkers and mixed together. And you know, after a while, the drug users said, we want our own group. We'd rather. Because we don't feel comfortable here, we feel like we're you know kind of looked down on, so we feel more comfortable in our own group. So I said, "Go ahead, make your own group." Because uh, I always listen to what the people say. I don't. I'm not the person that right. uh, dic- dictates from above how to do it. I listen to what you guys ask me that and say that you want, and we try to accommodate everything we can. Right. Well, the level of stigma that that you know people who use illegal substances experience in this country and other places is, of course, greater than people experience for using alcohol. You know, you could you could be president of the United States and drink alcohol every day in front of people, and no one's going to bat an eye, really, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. as long as you're continuing to do your job, whereas, you know, that's not the, the same is not true for the user of any illegal substances. They'll never, they'll never reach the same status uh, mm-hmm. of of upward mobility. Mm-hmm. Well, what are some of the initiatives you have going on to promote uh, drug users' rights or to reduce stigma? Um, well, just the promotion of the of getting drug user groups. Uh, you know, I've heard, any place that I hear about that a drug user group is trying to form or something. You know, I've been trying to make myself available one way or the other to help advise them on starting a drug user group. It's pretty simplistic, you know, because every group is going to develop its own organic kind of characteristics. Um, Kind of like the Seattle, you know, drug users group, the Urban Survivors Union is very different than the San Francisco Drug Users Union. Um, That's one thing. Also, um, we're working, I'm working on something called a Drug User Media Collective, which is... uh, and on, it will be an online uh, data resource uh, uh, collected that is uh, by drug users for drug users. So this might have like the bylaws of various drug user unions and the histories of various drug user unions. It'll have artwork by drug users, uh, harm reduction based artwork by drug users for drug users. Um, 
And uh, also, you know, one of the campaigns I, I, that the Drug User Rights Action Network wants to work on is uh, exposing um, the terrible thing that happens when people are denied liver and kidney transplants and other organ transplants because of a history of drug, just a history of drug use, let alone the people that are denied transplants for using medical marijuana. Um, that's that's one of the goals of the Drug User Rights Action Network is to publicize their stories. Yeah, that's uh, that's just horrible to hear about, you know. Yeah, they had a really good articles about some poor folks in New York that had been waiting. You know, they waited they waited seven years for a kidney, and their own doctor. You know, it's legal for them to be prescribed medical marijuana in the state that they're in, but the medical board at wherever, um, you know has people that they just, anybody that's used any illegal substances is put to the bottom of the list, uh, you know, and, and and they've been taken off transplant lists for using marijuana. That's just, that, that's a real crime right there. Well, it is. As we said before, it would be just, it's, it's no better than doing it based on race or ethnicity or sexual preference just because you choose to use drugs. It, it, it's all the same to me. These are just, it's just discrimination. You know, my definition of a drug user is really broad. It's anyone who's ever used a substance consciously that changed their mood. Um, and so, you know, all the people in the United States who, uh, who are on pain meds, to me, are drug users of a sort. Mm-hmm. They're, even though they're not using recreationally, we think of, but they have to deal with all the same issues that anyone who ingests a substance has to deal with. They have to deal with, you know, have they been educated about the side effects? Have they been educated about uh, tolerance and dependence and all those things? Um, and so that the pool of drug users in this country who have had their, their rights trampled on, I mean, I think pain med uh, patients are getting a really raw deal in the United States right now. Uh, being cut off left and right because of crackdowns by the DEA, and meanwhile people are in pain and suffering, you know, because their doctors are afraid to write them for pain medication. I think that's another group of people that should be up in arms about their rights as as drug ingesters. Well, if we get right down to it, if we uh, start looking at people over the age of 21 in the United States, I think it's very hard to find anyone who's never had a pain medication such as codeine or we'll we'll leave aspirin out of the uh equation now but that's a that's a drug too aspirin or codeine uh antidepressants are mood altering drugs to find anyone over the age of 21 that's never had one of these mood altering drugs we'd have to there's there's probably some people of some extreme religious groups perhaps mormons uh that have not but uh for everybody else probably everybody's had something yeah, no, I mean, uh, I think Mormons uh, um, do eat sugar, um, and uh, and caffeine is, you know, they they don't do caffeine, as far as I know, but, um, you know, as the definition of what a drug user is, I think as more people realize what a broad definition it really is, I'm hoping that more people will be get involved in the movement to, to end the stigmatization and, and, and uh, criminalization of drug users. Um, you know, because back to the pain med people, like people that like have a, an expired prescription, they kind of talked about this at the conference we were at in Portland, the HRC conference. If you're carrying around an expired pre- uh, prescription, that's like a federal crime. You know, you, you had mm-hmm. codeine and and it, it expired, and you're still carrying it around. You get stopped with it if if the cops really want to pursue it. 
it's it's a serious crime now, and that's part of the whole criminalization of, of people who are just trying to get health care. Mm, absolutely. Well, well, I think we're going to be winding the show down a little bit. So, what would you like to leave our listeners with this evening? Um, I would just like to leave the listeners uh, with uh, that um, if they're interested in what I do and the San Francisco Drug Users Union, um, they can contact us uh, via the web, uh, via Facebook. Um, if you Google us, you'll find our web pages. Um, if you want to check out my uh, my blog on drug user rights, it's at uh, DrugUserRights.blogspot.com. Uh, that's the Drug User Rights Action Network, um, and that uh, that I'm encouraging uh, drug users, all my brother and sister drug users around the world, to advocate for themselves and to stand up for their rights um, and to band together and support one another. And one of the ways we can do this is through, uh, you know, our own type of support group. We can run it any way that we want to. And we don't have to abide by a lot of the old rules of the 12-step groups um, in order to get better. Thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Johnny Lorenz. Thank you, Kenneth. Thanks a lot for having me. And everyone, stay tuned. Next week, next Thursday, our guest will be Claudia Christian, uh, who starred in Babylon 5 as Commander Susan Ivanova. She's going to talk about the struggle that she had with alcohol and how she solved the problem using naltrexone and the Sinclair method. It should be a very interesting show, so I will see you all then, and good night.